Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy Pettis, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, Steve Edelman. All right. And today we're talking loosely about kind of the emotional side of diabetes. And if you're listening and wondering what that means, it means if you've got diabetes and you're just pissed off about it, you know, what's that like? What does it mean? Like, uh, everybody's dealing with this. And importantly, what can we do about it? So, Steve, I think you would agree that we're joined by the premier expert in this topic, um, Dr. Bill Polonsky. So tell us about Bill, Steve. Yeah, but first let me just say, not not everybody with diabetes distress is pissed off. Well, I am. Okay, you are. <laughs> but there's a lot of different emotions out there. And that's why we have Bill and not you talking about this topic. Okay. Jeez, I'll leave. <laughs> yeah. So for everybody, uh, if you don't know Bill Polonsky, you're a loser. That's how I'm going to start off. And uh, Bill Polonsky has spent his entire career studying, talking, uh, the behavioral uh, and emotional aspects of diabetes. He started the Diabetes Behavioral Institute, uh, which is really a one-of-a-kind organization that focuses on uh, these issues in people with diabetes. And he also is uh, the winner of the honorary diabetes degree, which means that he is someone without diabetes himself, but knows very much what it's like to have diabetes. And um, we're and you, lucky to have Bill and you never You never say who gives out that award. It's very important. Well, because I know you always ask me. Uh, <laughs> it's taking control of your diabetes. Mm -hmm. And we've only given out three, Ian Bloomer and Tricia Santos. It's a very uh, unique award, and we don't just hand it out like candy. Highly coveted. Comes with what, $20 Target? Yeah. Now, now, now before we start, could I, I'd like permission to ask Bill the very first question. Please. You know, there's very few people like you, Bill. I know there's a handful of people that specialize in this area. How did you get into this area? Well, thanks, Steve. That's a that's a. I wish I had like a really great story, like you know. My, well, just make it my, up. <laughs> my little sister and I nursed her back to health, and but uh, in truth, what happened is I just by happenstance uh, lucked into a job as a psychologist, and I may have been the first psychologist at the Jocelyn Diabetes Center in Boston, and um, I'm by training what's called a clinical health psychologist. I didn't know much about diabetes, but uh, I was very lucky to have this job. Uh, they didn't know what to do with me. I wasn't sure what I was supposed to do. It was sort of this uh, uh, thought. They said, well, why don't we just have a psychologist here for like six months and see what happens? And I said, oh, okay. Um, and not knowing what to do, luckily, the Jocelyn is the largest diabetes center in the world, so they have a big waiting room with lots of people. So I started walking around and asking folks. I would sit with them and introduce myself and say, could you tell me what living with diabetes is like for you? And I still remember the first time I ever did that because the first person I asked sort of looked at me in shock and said something that really surprised me. She said, thank you. And I went, what? She goes, well, no one's ever asked me that question before. Um, I said, well, I'm asking you now. So she was nice enough to tell me about, you know, what she was going through and some of the struggles that I didn't really know about. And I went to the next person in the waiting room and the exact same thing happened. And Actually, by the end of, I'd say, a couple hours, I was introducing people in the waiting room to each other. Uh, we think we had our first informal support group. And I'd just been very lucky ever since then. That was 1987, 1988, and just had the chance to meet so many wonderful folks, thousands now, over all these years. And I've been honored to um, 
that they would be willing to share their stories with me and learn about what's gone well, where they've struggled, work with them to figure out what to do to make things better. So it's been a great ride. Yeah, and I think, you know, just saying that, you know, why are we talking about this? And I, I personally believe I'm biased that diabetes is a uniquely difficult disease. I mean, it, I can't think of something else that requires such 24-7 vigilance. Um, the constant monitoring, you know, testing your blood sugar, looking at your CGM, taking your medications, the constant quote-unquote failures daily of I'm going low, I'm going high, all on the backdrop of if I'm messing up, gosh, what is this doing to my eyes, my kidneys, uh, not to mention the literal cost of the medications and the time. I mean, the list goes kind of on and on and on. And... We talk about this. Jeremy, whole... I have to stop you. Yeah. We have to stop the podcast. Uh, Bill's here. We have a couch. <laughs> Get on the couch. <laughs> we can treat you right now. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, geez, man, what's happening? Um, but no, I think it's important to, to, to level set. But what is, like, why are we talking about this? What are people struggling with out there? And I, I think everybody listening can relate to in some way, including Steve and I. Steve was just showing me, you know, his CGM from yesterday, and I haven't shown you mine yet because it was actually worse than yours, Steve. But just your numbers weren't even that bad. You were actually in range most of the time, but you had a low, and then you kind of rocketed up, and you went low again. That con- that, that classic roller coaster. That even if your A1C is okay and your numbers are quote unquote good, God, what a pain in the butt it can be. And sometimes, Steve, people are pissed off. Yeah, <laughs> along with other emotions. Um, Thank you. So, um, so Bill, I got a list of questions here for you. Um, so, in that vein, what kind of problems does a diabetes psychologist see? What does somebody walk in the door and say to you? Well, I think I've, uh, it's, it's it's a huge variety. So, uh, uh, I would say sometimes what they'll come in with is. Uh, uh, I think you're referring to it. It's just people come in and say, I'm so tired of this. That's probably the most common thing. I'm just so tired of having diabetes. And most of the emotional issues that come up really have to do with people struggling about why can't I do a better job with mm-hmm. my diabetes, feeling like they're failing, feeling like um, uh, uh, they're being aggravated by people in their, live, in their lives. I mean, really, it's it's a range of things about how do I fit diabetes into my life in a way that doesn't drive me out of my mind? So it's it's really, I would say the major thing is about people struggling with diabetes um, in that way. Sometimes it's about their weight. Uh, lots of times it's about people dealing with specific issues about hypoglycemia or concerns or worries about complications or developing complications or um, battles with their loved ones. It's a, a big, big range of different things that people come in with. Well, it sounds like very few are pissed. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Did you hear the... He didn't say the undertone of all that is anger. That's what they say first. And Jeremy, I'm pissed off, and I have this. So, I, you know, while you're talking, Bill, you said people are um, feeling like they're failing. And how often do you think that is set to a concrete measurement? You know, I'm failing because my A1C is not seven, or is it just a general sense of I should be doing better? Yeah, I would say it's that's. I would say it's fifty-fifty. Sometimes people really do feel like they are failing because they've been told they're failing. You know, like their uh, their doctor says your 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 blood sugars aren't good enough, your blood pressure isn't good enough, and they they they're, they're, they talk about real numbers, but. Probably the majority of the time, that's not true. Just people feel they're failing because of what happened today. Like I overate at lunch or, you know, I had a crazy blood sugar experience. It can be something very small and just there's a sense of defeat. 
And sometimes they're pissed off. Sometimes they're just sad and discouraged and scared about what might happen to them. You know, Jeremy, that, that, that is, that's an excellent question. Um, and, you know, we, we see people who work their butt off. They get their A1C down to 7.1. And most doctors say, oh, mm-hmm. it's not less than 7. You know, you're do, you know, you need to work harder at that. Or they look at the lab results where uh, a pathologist puts the normal range for people without diabetes. And they think they're failing because it says H next to 7.3, mm-hmm. which is really a damn good blood uh, level blood sugar or A1C. So uh, that is a good question. You know, people just generally feel like they fail failing everything. In fact, they get pissed. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this is the theme <laughs> of this podcast. So, um, you know, I was going to say, I, I kind of asked that because I, I see a lot of patients that are objectively meeting their glycemic goals. You know, type ones, their time and range is, let's say, 75%. And I'll say to them, you are doing well. You are meeting goals. You are in a safe place. And there's generally this sense of, yeah, but they don't believe it. I could be doing better. I'm still not, you know, healthy enough. So I'm constantly reminding people, you know, if you are achieving these metrics, which we set for reasons that we know if you get there, you will live a long and healthy and potentially complication-free life. So for God's sake, celebrate those. Um, But there seems to be this just this kind of nagging, like, gosh, like I I can do better. And that's hard to kind of pull apart, I think, sometimes for people. Yeah. And I I, I think you might probably see that more in folks with type one, especially Mm -hmm. if they're more achievement oriented. And and it's probably because of this deeply held belief that we see in in other disease states, um, which is just this belief that the lower the better, mm-hmm. right? So we don't have to make this complicated. I don't care if you have an A1C goal for me of 7.0% or less. The lower the better. That means I'm safer. The lower the better, better with my blood pressure is the safer. But one of the things that we know about it, if you step back and think about it, that's crazy, right? Because the lower the better is not true. It's lower the better to a point, and that's not clear to lots of folks. Mm-hmm. That's not clear that you have vanishing benefits once your A1C gets below a certain point. Or actually, your blood pressure can get too low, and that can be a problem. Your blood sugars can get too low, and that could be a massive problem. So um, I don't, it, we simply don't communicate that um, well enough. Bill, um, we have a lot of folks listening and from over 100 countries to our podcast, which is awesome. You know, type 1 and type 2. What are, what are some of the most common things you hear from people with type 2? You've already mentioned weight. We know that's a big frustrating area that leads to diabetes distress, which we, we might talk about next. But what are some of the real common things people with type 2 diabetes talk about with you? I think one of the biggest ones is is shame. You know, I think shame is very important. And, of course, you know, it's... Not really necessarily people do that to themselves, but we do that to folks. That we know that type 2 diabetes in particular is one of the rare diseases, at least in America, where we kind of think it's okay to blame people for getting it. Yeah. Uh, kind of like how we blame people for being overweight. Mm-hmm. It's not fair. It's not accurate. It's not true. Many people even listening to us may not even believe it. But we know that's that's the biggest problem. And when you're shaming and blaming people for, well, it's your fault your blood sugars are high. It's your fault you could develop type 2 diabetes. It's your fault you're overweight. You know, you're not doing enough. You're lazy. You're not self-disciplined. It's people take that to heart, right? They take it to heart. They blame themselves. And that doesn't tend to mo- mo- motivate and mobilize anybody to do anything. It just makes you want to put your head in a hole and say, I don't want to think about this anymore. So it's a really big problem that comes up over and over and over again. 
and dealing with that sense of shame and doing something about how we blame people is really an important first step to help people be able to feel interested and engaged to want to take positive action. Yeah, I, mean, I always talk about that too. That's, that is so unique about type 2 diabetes because if somebody came to you with pretty much any other illness, hey, I, I got cancer, I had pneumonia, your initial response would be, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. But it's, you know, hey, I have type 2 diabetes and you get, they get kind of looked up and down and, hmm, yeah, you know, I see that because like, you ate yourself into that or whatever. And it's just, it's really inappropriate and it can be really harmful to people and can make them really disengaged. Um, what about syphilis? <laughs> yeah, that's, maybe that's what you see <laughs> patients for. Is the, um, but so, I, I just want to highlight what you're saying. We do not blame and shame people for any other chronic illness condition mm-hmm. in the universe yeah. except for type 2 diabetes. You know, I, I should say to our listeners that uh, in our video vault on our website, we have lots of good lectures about type 2 diabetes and why is it that over 95% of people with type 2 have weight problems, the central... Uh, what we call adiposity in medicine. So it's part of the genetic defect that causes type 2 along with high blood pressure, abnormal cholesterol. And that, you take those three conditions, you know you're going to be on four to five medications. And that's a whole other issue that you deal with all the time. You know, I've heard you say, you know, patients equate the number of medications to how sick they are. Absolutely. And so, you know, type 2 diabetes, we, you know, we share a lot of things with type 1s, but they really have that metabolic syndrome that really sets them up to be overweight and then all the other things that they have to deal with because, you know, our society is prejudiced against people that are overweight. Yeah, and I, I think another big issue, I know I see folks for this, is that if you're struggling with type 2 diabetes, oftentimes, at least in our society, they probably have other health care problems too. And there's a sense of what am I supposed to do? You know, and maybe they think, well, I'm supposed to, you know, just start eating perfectly. Or my doctor told me I'm supposed to lose 50 pounds. But there's this sense of paralysis because what can I do that's going to really make some significant difference to moving forward? And I, I see that people often get lost with that. It's over, They just feel overwhelmed. So let me, let me ask you. So we've just kind of laid out a laundry list of issues that people can have. It can be weight, hypoglycemia, all these kinds of things a lot mentally for people to deal with. And when I see patients that are struggling with something that I identify as an emotional aspect of diabetes, and I ask them to see you, and we're very fortunate to have you local, you're very amenable to getting people in, um, I would say about one out of 10 of them actually call you. And this has nothing to do with you or your expertise, it's just that there's some barrier there. You know, I don't know if it's just the, the idea of psychological care, but it seems to take a lot for people to admit if you want that they have an issue or to, and then to, to seek help. So how do you, do you, do you even see that? Or do you, I mean, you're only seeing the people that actually come to see you. So what, maybe what does it take for people to finally make that choice? Yeah, well, I think what you're identifying is very common. That, and I think, and you've mentioned it, but there's, there's two big reasons why oftentimes people don't follow through. You know, one is, um, well, we know what psychologists are. I'm going to have to lie down on a couch. And that's really only for weak people anyway. Um, and if you're already feeling shamed and blamed, I don't want to go to, to, to see a psychologist, to see a psychiatrist, to see a therapist. I've already lost, mm. you know. You're sort of one down. And this is just someone else is going to uh, judge me or uh, et cetera. But there's a sense of, again, it's more shame. It's more blame. It's not necessarily perceived as something that's going to be helpful. Um, and we know that one of the things that works best for, 
well, people like me, is when there's some kind of warm handoff. So if I have a chance to be in your clinic, for example, as I often do, and, and actually get to meet someone in the flesh, um, when that referral happens, and they go, oh, you know, you, you look fairly, right. <laughs> well, I'm not totally normal, but fairly normal, and, you know, um, there's a greater comfort in saying, you know, maybe this might be worth trying at least once, maybe. So there's, there's all those sorts of reasons why it can be tough, though. You know, Bill, one, one topic that we've talked about before is uh, this whole topic of diabetes distress. You are developing, a, you have developed a scale, and I know you're updating the scale, how to measure diabetes distress, and, and how is that different than diabetes depression? Because I know years ago, all the headlines of the diabetes journals, were, depression is, you know, five times higher in people with diabetes, you know, and I know you have some thoughts on that. Yeah, we've actually written a lot about this. So we know that, um, yeah, as you mentioned, we used to think, well, if people are having all these emotional feelings, whatever it might be, or as Jeremy might say, they're just pissed off. Because um, they are. We would just say, <laughs> we, we used to just say, oh, that's just depression. Uh, people are just depressed. They don't look depressed, but they're depressed. And uh, you know, our most recent evidence suggests that's not true. I mean, the combination of depression and diabetes does happen. When it does, it's pretty bad. But it's not as common as we thought. And what we thought was depression was people just being, well, what we're talking about, really upset, freaked out, and overwhelmed about diabetes, pissed off, discouraged, embarrassed, shamed, isolated, um, feeling helpless and hopeless. And the reason that's an important distinction, um, because it's not depression, because it's something unique, it's diabetes distress, or sometimes we call it diabetes burnout. That's important because diabetes distress doesn't respond to an antidepressant pill. And that's why it's important to, when it's possible to see, when it gets severe, to see a mental health professional, um, even though you know people do what I do is pretty rare, unfortunately. So along those lines, if you do have diabetes distress, or you know, there's something in your life of diabetes that you want to address, what can you do about it? You know, so if, if you have a Bill Polonsky down the street, great. But if you don't, what are some, you know, you talk about some concrete things that, that people can do. Sure. Well, uh, first of all, I'd say, well, the majority of people don't need to see anyone like me. Mm-hmm. That if you ever feel overwhelmed or angry or upset or pissed off, you should know that's normal. Um, it doesn't mean it's great, it's but normal. you should know that that's... That? It's normal to be pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> it's really common. We've done tons of studies. We understand how how common the sense of feeling overwhelmed and burned out and seeing all these emotional problems associated with diabetes. diabetes. The issue becomes when it gets really overwhelming. Um, So I will say, first of all, when it's really big and you really do want to see a mental health professional, um, people should know about what the the American Diabetes Association Mental Health Registry. Um, And all they have to do is Google that or go to diabetes.org and uh, you see a search box and put in mental health registry, and you can put in your zip code and you can find out if there are diabetes-knowledgeable mental health professionals in your area who you might call, you might contact and see if uh, you might want to see them, if that's not something that's covered by insurance, if it's affordable or not. But just day-to-day when you're dealing with some of these emotional issues, there's a ton of things you could um, do. You know, one of the things that we've talked about, and I won't go through my long list now, but just to mention one is we think it's important for people to, well, get perspective, right? We're always talking about this, and we've talked about this at TCOID since its inception, which is an idea that um, 
it is our job as healthcare providers to tell people the real facts in the 21st century and to help provide people with what we call evidence-based hope that if you develop type 1 today, if you have type 2 now, you're not doomed. This is not a death sentence. And we know with good care and effort, odds are pretty good. You can live a long and healthy life with diabetes. And we also think about the words we use. And Jeremy, I'm hearing you do this all the time. It's wonderful. We, when we talk about... That pisses me off. (laughs) (laughs) You have not complimented me once. Well, I'm waiting. It's too easy to compliment (laughs) you, Let the man talk, Steve. (laughs) Go on, Bill. What are you saying? Um, When one's... If your A1C is elevated, we talk about it being in an unsafe place. We don't say it's good or bad. We don't say it's high or low even. We like to say it's safe or unsafe. Your blood pressure is elevated. We like to talk about it being safe or unsafe. And the reason those words are so important, which is what I do hear you both always use now, is because it takes the shame away. We're not being judgmental. I'm concerned you're in an unsafe place. That means there's something we should pay attention to, something we can do about it without having to be pointing our fingers at folks. So there's lots of things we can talk about, but those are just a couple. Well, I'm glad that we, we stumbled on this again, that I think level setting that diabetes does not mean doom and gloom always that you can have control over it it can't even end up being a positive thing as it has been for for steve and i of, of using it to um shape your life your career all these you know these positive things but at least engaging with your health and um you know watching what you eat and observing your weight all these kinds of things and we talk a lot about all the data now that in people that are reasonably well controlled um, with type 1 diabetes, they can live just as long, if not longer, than people without diabetes. And that's something that, you know, Steve and I, we always talk about that both of us, when we we're in the hospital diagnosed as 15 year old kids, people told us multiple times, well, you just lost 15, 20 years of your life. And that is just not true anymore. So I think people living with diabetes really need to hear that. If you are controlling your diabetes, you are healthy. Period. And I remember doing a, a talk at TCOID and I, I made people, it was a virtual thing, and I, I made that, that statement. It said, you're healthy. I said, everybody say it. I am healthy. And I was kind of surprised <laughs> to see everybody actually typing it in the little chat, like, you know, in all caps. But I think that's so important um, to gain back some control of your life and start there. Yeah. And all, also realize if you are controlling your diabetes, um, you can still also struggle with with mental health, you know, but but kind of unpacking these things as as separate issues. I want to address my A1C, my blood pressure, and my lipids, and also keep an eye on how am I doing mentally with with tackling all these things. Yeah, and the truth is, you can be successful with the the job that diabetes is, the work you have to do, but it's still a job. Yeah, it and it gets wearing and it gets exhausting, and that's again a big source of stress for folks. When you're really putting in the effort and time, why wouldn't you get fed up with it and overwhelmed and sick of it over mm-hmm. the course of time. And we, we talk about celebrating the little victories um, because, you know, Bill, you taught us this, that, you know, diabetes is, is you're working your butt off all day, every day. Um, and what's your ultimate goal? Your ultimate goal is nothing. Like you don't want anything to happen. And so how can you work so hard all the time just just for nothing? So there's got to be some positive payout like, oh, you know, I just ate, you know, three donuts and I bolused and didn't go high or I exercised without going low or I slept all night without waking up or um, I had an eye exam that went well. And we talk about these things as almost throwaway comments, but it's really important. And that doesn't necessarily mean throwing a party, but just a, a moment of self-reflection like, oh, like I, I just kind of cleared that diabetes hurdle and everything was okay. 
and I'm going to at least give myself a pat on the back or better yet, you know, text Steve. We'll put his phone number at the end of the podcast <laughs> um, and, uh, you yeah. know, kind of like uh, talk about it with a, a friend. I like throwing a party. That's a good <laughs> idea. Bill, um, I wanted to ask you, there's a lot of people listening who care about someone living with type one and type two and, you know, address this answer to the, the significant others. How could they help? And importantly, how could someone with diabetes having problems engage the right type of help from their type three partner? Sure. Good. I'm, I'm so glad you asked that. So if you care about someone who has diabetes type one or type two, and you really want to be of help, the single most important thing I can tell you is this. You don't really know how to be of help. And the most important thing you could do is to ask um, where we see trouble happen, where people end up becoming the diabetes police and start nagging, is because they care, they want to help, but they actually don't really know the best thing. They've got some their own idea what to do, but they've never asked the, the expert in the room, which is the person with diabetes. So the single most important thing you could do is to Ask your loved one, the person who has diabetes, look, I'm rooting for you. I'm on your side. Um, what can I do that can make this easier for you? You know, what can I do just to let you know I'm, I'm, I'm here for you? Um, maybe that means I can, uh, uh, you know, I can, we can go out and have donuts together every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Maybe that means you're trying to be more physically active. Let's, let's do that together. You're trying to follow most diabetes-friendly way of eating. That's a good idea for all of us, right? Yeah. It's just a healthier way of eating. Just so simple ask, communication. Just ask. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, I love that. And it seems so obvious. But the other thing I always say about that is ask in a time that it's not a diabetes code red situation. <laughs> you know, I find that these yes. conversations usually come around when, you know, blood sugar's 50 and get me juice and, oh, you never helped me. And, might like you know, like then it becomes this big thing. That pisses me off. <laughs> it really, <laughs> really does. We're back to that. Um, Excellent. So, you know, actually having a conversation around diabetes when it's a Sunday evening and you're watching TV and, you know, there's nothing pressing diabetes going on. And, but it never generally comes up that way. But it's ever present in, in not just like a romantic relationship, but all relationships, mm-hmm. um, you know. That's such good advice. Yeah, yeah we always for say everything pick, in life. We know? always say the only way to do this is you want to pick a dispassionate moment to have yes, that conversation. Not code red. Not when you're pissed off. I guess. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, Bill, I hope the answer to this is something positive. But you know, people come to you for a wide array of reasons, and how often do you see them get better? I mean, is there hope <laughs> for people that are feeling uh, it's just that they can't win? I see that the vast majority of people who come to see us do get better, get dramatically better. We know we can help almost everybody. It is a very, very rare individual who we haven't been able to help. And when that happens, it, it breaks my heart. It's Luckily, it's very, very rare. So one should have hope about that as well. Mm-hmm. And, and are these things that, again, kind of come from within that people can trigger themselves that you just kind of help give them the push? Or and I'm asking more, again, if somebody is in the middle of the country and they, they can't see you know, a diabetes specialist? Are there things that they can do to set them on the right path? Um, there's always, yeah, I mean, I think I want to be clear about this. For the vast majority of people who are really struggling with the emotional side of diabetes, there isn't going to be a mental health professional who's knowledgeable enough about diabetes. Right. There just aren't enough. So it means talking to your loved ones, like we've talked about. I like, I like I've always said before in other, in other venues when we've, we've spoken, the single most important thing we always say is don't do diabetes alone. You know, when you've got people in your life 
who are rooting for you, and especially when you get a chance to meet other people with diabetes who get it. You know, I think every child and adult should go to diabetes camp. We talk about the one conference, for example, you guys like to do once a year. But, you know, that's the single most important thing. And it's something I know that you provide when you, in the limited time you have, even when you see your own patients, to let people know that if you're having a tough time, what they really need is not a solution. They just need a hug, you know, and let, you know, you're doing your best, putting out your effort. We can begin to think this through. We can do this together. You know, and I've met folks who will tell me, you know, I used to be really struggling with my diabetes. I was fed up. And now I'm really... I found a way to make peace of it, peace with it, and I've engaged with it. And I, I ask them all the time, well, what the heck changed? What was that aha moment that made a difference? And very often, it was something that happened between them and either a healthcare provider or a friend. Mm. You know, and it's the simplest thing in the world. It was, I remember someone saying to me, you know, uh, I met a new endocrinologist, and he changed my insulin and made some other changes. And I didn't think much of it, except he called me on the phone a week later just to see how I was doing. And she said, and that was it. She goes, I was in shock. And if he cared enough to call me just to see how I was doing, I guess I could care about my diabetes as well. And that shifted everything for her with the sense that I've got a healthcare provider who's not judging me but is on my side. Mm -hmm. And we see that all the time, whether it's a healthcare professional, it's meeting someone in your life who's, you know, maybe you're interested in or who just cares about you. Um, all these things really matter. So don't do diabetes alone. Think about how you can reach out, whether that means your life now, it means reaching out to resources online, to other, other people who you can contact. That's the key, I think. That's awesome, Bill. Well, my, as we get to the end of our program, um, that was a perfect way to end it on your end i can hear from you too jeremy but see when i just sitting here thinking of all the patients i i see who have a1c's that are pretty high above nine percent ten percent it is the rare individual that doesn't have some emotional uh issues going on with their diabetes whether it's adhering to the medication to the lifestyle sure. just and i really think that if more people would seek out help from a Bill Polonsky or Bill Polonsky type of person, uh, the world would be a better place. And I just think only a fraction of people uh, would consider going and getting some help. Yeah, I was just going to say that I feel a lot better just sitting here listening to Bill and not the words he's saying, but just the melody of his voice. <laughs> and I think you should do like a meditation app or something. Like I think you should run a talk, a sex talk show. You see how soft and sexy I know, and it getting? got softer and sexier as the podcast oh went on. Oh my God. I was in a trance here for a little bit. There's no cameras oh, yeah, on our podcast. <laughs> All right, well, Bill, we love you. Thanks for stopping by. This is a, a great, great topic. And I'm sure we'll have you back on many times. I'm hoping to, to do future uh, episodes with us. And Bill has many video productions on the TCOID website. Mm -hmm. And books. Anything else you want to say about Bill Polonsky? I don't need to push anything. Just know that I'm just happy to be here. Love you guys. Happy to have anything to do with TCOID and wishing everybody well. All right, guys. So this is going to wrap up this edition of our Taking Control of Your Diabetes uh, podcast. Make sure to share with your friends. Like us, all that kind of social media stuff. <laughs> TikTok. We'll see, yeah, we'll see Tinder, you next time. Anything. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.